Hello, friends. My name is Rob Webster, and thanks for listening. Today, I talked to my friend Stacy Kennard about trauma healing. This is episode seven of The Story That Writes Us. Stacy Kennard is a friend of mine from college. And as soon as we were graduating from college, Stacy met a man named Mark, and Mark was joining the Marines. He later became a Marine chaplain, and the two of them together have been doing some important trauma healing work. They've lived in a number of different places around the world. They lived in Nairobi, Kenya for a season when they were doing trauma healing work in South Sudan. They've been working with Ukrainian soldiers recently and doing trauma healing work there. And our conversation took a surprising turn when I learned how trauma had come to their own family and the healing that they needed to do. I really appreciate Stacy taking the time to talk with me. It's a fascinating interview. And I think she has a lot of important things to say, not just about storytelling, but also listening to stories and how important that is to bring about healing. Here's my interview with Stacy Kennard. Take me back in time, um, back to probably what was it our senior year of college when you met Mark Mm -hmm. he was planning on going into the Marines to be a chaplain that was his that was his intent Mm -hmm. and um to he he felt called to ministry and called to that ministry in particular isn't is that right yeah well he wasn't he couldn't be a chaplain then because he didn't have seminary degree or anything so you know back then his idea was the um the military was a mission field everything is right so he he just decided one day that and he had gr- just graduated and he from college and he decided that he needed to do something um, different and he prayed and he actually called two recruiters he called the army and they said okay well we'll schedule you to come in and do this and this and then he called the marines and they said we'll be right over <laughs> wow so they actually came to his house with the paperwork and he signed up oh my god so he when i met him he had he had already signed the papers and he was leaving pretty soon after that for boot camp. But he enlisted and uh, became an enlisted Marine and off he went. But we met right before that. It was funny because, you know, we never really dated. Do you remember that? It was like I met him through my sister and then we talked a lot and we wrote letters. And then he said, I just want you to know you're the girl I want to marry. And oh, by the way, I leave in six weeks for boot camp. You know. Wow. And so I don't think I don't. Yeah, I I don't. I I didn't remember that. I didn't remember how you met him and what that connection was. (laughs) Uh, I do remember being surprised um, when you when you told me about him, and uh, I was like, oh, okay. Who is this guy? Yeah. Well, but but I remember you so appreciated his his faith and his heart um, for for really doing God's work. I just remember that really meant a lot to you. Yeah, it did. And it sounded like a good, a big adventure. And so off he went. He went to boot camp and all that. And basically we got, like he came home the day before we got married. We got married, moved to California because he was stationed out at Camp Pendleton. And five months later, he was off to Somalia and uh, on his first deployment. And it was like that for four years. A lot of deployments. And that was, I'd never been that far away from home. Wow. Um, There I was. I had to learn a lot the hard way and quickly. 
he was deployed to Somalia and, and where else? Um, let's see, back then he was in Somalia and Iraq. Okay. Um, and Jordan. Four years later, he got out and we, um, cause we, and we had in our mind, we wanted to go, we wanted to serve and we wanted to serve overseas. And so he went to seminary, um, and finished that. And then at the end of that, we were sent to Zambia and we, we were there for six years. And what kind of work were you doing in Zambia? Well, um, we were doing church planting. Well, I should say he was his, <laughs> his title. <laughs> I'm not trying to just, you know, okay, I'll just be yeah, honest here. No, I know what you're saying. His title was um, church planter. My title got to be church and home evangelism because they didn't allow the women to be church planters. But um, the reality was I learned the language faster than he did. And, um, and I loved Bible storying, and so did Mark. But I was kind of more of a natural with it because of the language. And so I was able to go out to a couple of places and and plant churches. And um, and that was fun. And it was wonderful that I had a husband who, you know, believed in me enough to support me to do that. So that's, anyway, that was a really sweet time in your life, would you say? It sounds like yeah. it was a it was a neat yes, time. Yes, it was it was hard. We, all, we got malaria, we we lost a baby, we you know, a lot happened. We made some lifelong friends that we served with and um, you suffer together. <laughs> you not only Zambians, but also other missionaries. Um, and that's actually where we first started to think about uh, caring for people who were serving overseas in missions um, and in humanitarian work and all that, because we, we were helped so much by people who that was their calling. Um, and I don't know if we would have made it through some of the hard things um, that we went through. We did not have pastoral caregivers, people coming along the side of us that like even would come out to visit us where we lived and it wasn't comfortable, but they came, they were present. It meant a lot, kept us there. As the Canards came towards the end of their six year stint as missionaries in Zambia, the United States was active in conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. A Marine friend of Mark's reached out to him and said that there was a desperate need for good military chaplains. So, Mark re-enlisted as an officer this time. He came in as a lieutenant in the Navy. Navy chaplains also serve the Marines, Stacy explains. Um, if you're a Navy chaplain, you can be stationed with whoever. And so first we were sent to a Naval Construction Battalion. He went to Iraq with them, um, had a couple deployments with them. And then later we were with the Marine Battalion. And then he really found his feet. Um, but that's also when he went to Afghanistan. He would say, he says um, that Afghanistan was the, it was the kicker, so to speak. It was the hardest. Yeah. Iraq was hard, but there was, he said there wasn't anything like Afghanistan. And he, he was out a lot, like in forward operating areas. He would, I'm glad he didn't tell me this at the time. He would hike out to places with his RP. The RP is the religious programmer. It's like the assistant to the chaplain who, the chaplain doesn't carry a weapon, but the RP does, and um, they they go together. So, you know, I used to tease his RPs. They're his bodyguard, and they really were. They yeah. were just super, super guys. But um, they would go out, you know, hike across the mountains to Afghan- in Afghanistan to 
places where the Marines were embedded. Maybe there'd just be a few here and there. And uh, I was always glad he told me about that after he got back to the base <laughs> and not before he was going. But yeah, that's really stressful to do that. And they, their, um, their battalion had some losses. And, you know, I think you just get in it and you're the chaplain and you, you're, you're helping these, these guys and gals they go out, they they experience, you know, a lot of stress. Um, you're hearing all of it, but you're also receiving them when they come in, helping them change out of their bloody clothes, whatever, um, holding them when they cry. I mean, I'll never forget those guys when they, and I say guys, but I mean guys and gals, but I will never forget when they came back to Camp Lejeune after that deployment. We had a memorial service for a couple that, um, the ones that didn't make it back and walking in, it was so different. Like when I saw them off and they were all, you know, they're just young. They're just kids. They're 18, 19, 20, smiling, laughing, you know, off they go. They come back seven, eight months later. We're walking into a memorial service and they just, just their eyes. Um, you just see that they're not the same. And, um, and that was hard to know that those those kids were changed like that. I can't imagine then, as you guys felt a call, not just Mark, but but you too, to to minister to people. What? How do you how do you help people find God in the midst of that? I I mean, I can't imagine that burden. I I, w- I wouldn't really know where to begin. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know what the first thing I learned was you never preach at people and um, and you don't try to spiritualize their pain you you sit with them in their pain that's how they find God is you are present with them in their suffering and that's hard and sometimes you want to run away um, it's hard to go and sit in people's darkness because some of that gets on you um, but it's necessary. It's necessary for them to heal. Um, and it's necessary, um, I think, for us to know who God really is. I just think that there's so much um, about that, about just sitting with people in their pain. And, and you're, um, I guess you're entering into, entering into their story. You know, you're stepping into yeah. a story and um, some stories are happy stories, uh, but um, I'm sure for them to have somebody enter into their story with them, uh, just to know that there's somebody there, uh, must be an incredible comfort. You know, on the flip side, when we found ourselves hurting, it's what we most wanted was for someone to be willing to step into our story, as messy as it was, and and stay. And that's the thing: can you stay in somebody's pain? Another ministry, I guess, after after that uh, deployment, and uh, Mark wrapped up that season in his career, and, and you all were working in South Sudan. Is that where you went first, or tell me tell me how that came about? We decided um, our time in the military was over, so that was seven years, and um, that we were back in it, so eleven total. And we um, we started just prayerfully looking around talking to some different um, mission groups and see what they had going on and where. And um, and we finally found a group, SIM, that's who we are with now. 
we talked to them. It, it really looked like a good fit. We would live in Nairobi, Kenya. We had five kids at that point because in the military, we adopted our son, Josiah. And then we had our four other biological children. And um, so five children, we were going to move to Nairobi, which we felt good about because it wasn't living in the bush again. The kids were happy because there's internet. And <laughs> but we would, yes, and we would serve a really large team that there were, we had three bases in South Sudan at that time. And um, we would serve that really large team. So we would travel in and out of South Sudan to visit them, support them. And then they would rotate into Nairobi every eight weeks to get supplies and rest. So that, that was our role. So to be chaplains for them. So chaplains for the uh, missionaries who were there, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Which we was, we loved it. We loved the whole idea of that. Um, And we saw a lot of crossover between military and, and missionaries actually. Um, kind of the needs they had. So we were pretty excited about this idea. And we both love chaplaincy because chaplaincy is about presence and it's about going where people are. You don't wait for them to come to you. You, It's that ministry of presence. In addition to working um, with those missionaries, um, were, you all were also a part of some other trauma healing things that were going mm-hmm. on in South Sudan. Is that right? Can you tell me a little bit about yeah. that? Yeah, that's when... Um, I first got introduced to the Trauma Healing Institute's program because our team was our team had been evacuated out of South Sudan. So we were all they were all in Nairobi. And I had found out about this. Uh, Mark and I had actually taken some training in Nairobi through the Trauma Healing Institute. So I invited the team to come do it, too. And then we we took that and started working with some of the refugees from South Sudan. Um, who had come and a lot of them were highly traumatized, but we started having small groups with them and just to help them and support them, giving them some Bible-based trauma care um, as they kind of work through their own hard stories. I started to see then how the church could be an answer to trauma, how they could respond in a way that was healing and helpful. And then just to hear people's stories about just to hear them express how telling their story and having someone listen to them for the first time took a huge weight off of them. And some of the stories were horrible. I mean, I still remember them, but I had to sit and be willing to carry them for that person so that it, and and sharing it did lighten it for them. And it made them want to go and do that for somebody else. And it made it heavier for you, too, I'm sure. Like you said, you get some of that on yeah, you. You do. I was drawn to learn about trauma, I think, because of what was going on in our family. Um, when Mark came back from Afghanistan, I think he and I both knew that something wasn't right. I really, and he he will say this very openly now, It's it's like a stranger came home. But our answer was... Um, we, well, we kept going for like another year and a half in the military, and then we'll get away from the military, so we'll we'll leave. Um, we'll do what we love to do, what God called us to a long time ago. So back we went, and here we're serving this team now in Nairobi, in Kenya, and South Sudan. I had just come back from South Sudan, like 
the day before, and Mark and I went to, we were going to the mall. It was our son's birthday the next day, and we were going to get this game for him. And we were going to have a coffee date, and so we headed out and told the kids we're headed to Westgate Mall. We'll be back later. And we got almost, we only lived just a few miles from the mall. We got almost there, and Mark said, I really don't want to go there. It's going to be crowded. Can we go to another mall on the other end of town? And I heard myself say, sure. Really, I was wanting to say, no, I want to go to this really nice mall, you know? And, but I could hear myself say, okay. And we went right at the roundabout instead of left. We went to this other place. We sat and had our coffee. We did not know that at that same time, the terrorist had come through the parking garage, through Art Cafe coffee shop in Westgate Mall, and were killing people. There were, I think it's 69 people killed and over 200 injured, and it was horrible. It went on for four days, um, this siege on the mall. And we, from where we lived, we could hear it. We eventually, we got home. Our kids thought the whole time that we were there and until, um, well, a couple of hours, they thought we were there. Oh my gosh. Yeah, because we couldn't get through on the phones because, of course, the phone lines were all packed with people trying to call loved ones and all this. They knew something bad was going on. Um, and then after that, oh my goodness, it was all over the news, anywhere you could you could hear, look, whatever. Plus, we could hear the whole thing because we lived only a few miles away, so we could hear explosions, we could hear gunfire, all the stuff for four days. Um, so it was really stressful, um, especially to one of our daughters who's just, I don't know, people, what I know now is that there's often no rhyme or reason to why somebody um, experiences a like a traumatic stress injury. Um, she ended up with a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder eventually. Um, it, it was a huge trigger for Mark. I mean, suddenly all of this just came up and came to the forefront. He was super hyper alert all the time, couldn't rest, um, always looking for exits everywhere we went, making plans. Um, and it was just all the things. I don't know, I feel like, you know, Rob, it's like we were just marinating in trauma and we could see it. He was a chaplain. He'd helped Marines who had post-traumatic stress injury. He'd helped them and he knew what it looked like, but he couldn't see it in himself. And I don't know if it was partly we didn't want to know. We didn't want to think that it was us. It's a little ironic when you're the caregivers, like you're the pastoral care people, you're the chaplain and you end up with uh, post-traumatic stress injury. <laughs> um, he just didn't want to believe that. He just wanted to keep going. Um, so we tried, but eventually, you know, our marriage was just in ruins in our family. It was, it was awful. We, and no, we didn't know how, we tried to go to a counselor for help. We tried three counselors, um, they all tried to give us marriage counseling and Mark would 
this was after we finally came home, he would go, he would sit out in the parking lot at the counselor after we went, and he would cry in the car. He'd just weep and say, it's not you, it's me, and they can't help me. And I just could see he was, we were, our daughter was getting help, um, but we, he wasn't getting help. We weren't getting help because we didn't know what to do with it. And we were afraid to tell anybody because we're missionaries, right? So who do you tell when these awful things are happening in your family, in your home? I couldn't take it anymore. And I, I knew one of two things was going to happen. He was either going to, he was going to do something to himself, hurt himself because he hated himself so much. He hated the explosions. He, he hated the like verbal abuse and, and the things he just, he felt so out of control. And, you know, a normal angry response is like, okay, you blow up, you get, it goes up, out. I think, you know, living with somebody with, with PTSD, it's like shrapnel. It goes straight out in all directions. People say that PTSD is contagious and it is because you, you're secondarily traumatized by living with somebody with PTSD. And so that's what our whole family was kind of just living in that. And I, I wanted to get help. I wanted to get help for us. I wanted to get help for Mark. My biggest fear was if I tell somebody, are they going to realize that this isn't who he is? You know, because it sounds like he's some monster, but he's not. And I knew he needed help and I didn't want them to just treat him like, oh, he's, he's abusing his family. You know, he's a terrible person. I wanted to tell so that we could get help. That's why I wanted to tell our story is to get help. At the end of the day, when I couldn't take it anymore and I just thought I'm, I'm either going to leave with the kids or, you know, he's going to hurt himself. So we called our pastor friend and he said the best words that, I mean, Mark really held on to this. He told Mark he loved him. He said, I'm, I love you. I'm going to be here for you. And this does not define you. And that, we he just kept going back to that later because we then took the next step and told some other people in our Christian community. And um, it did not go well at all. Um, that is not the response we got from them. Just There was just a sense of... Um, that he was damaged goods, and um, and then also that I was your typical abused wife who was just um, so emotionally unhealthy. I actually had somebody tell me that I couldn't be trusted to take care of my children or make good decisions for them because I hadn't, they said I hadn't so far made good decisions. And I felt like, you know, I've done the best I can to hold my family together. and. Um, what it a slap in the so, face. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm kind of, yeah, we I know this is, you're yeah. removed from this, but I'm kind of <laughs> angry for you right now yeah. just hearing that story. It was, it was hard. And now I'm just kind of being treated like we were fakes, you know, like, oh, you've been hiding this, who you really are or whatever. And, and my thought was, no, we've been surviving. And, um, and now we've told you, we finally found a, we found a therapist, a trauma therapist, who looked at us and said, you can go, Stacy. this isn't a marriage problem. And he looked at Mark and said, I can help you. And Mark cried, and I did too. We were so relieved, and he did help us. I mean, it took a couple of years, and Mark did the hard work. He did the hard work. He went every week. 
Um, he did EMDR therapy. Um, he just, he did the hard work and it paid off big time. But in the meantime, those two years were just like hell for us as a family. We had family members that, um, it just was hard. They couldn't walk through that with us. And, um, and we had, we lost a lot of friends. We were told that we might lose our missionary status. Which and, means you were told you might lose your job, right? Yes, yes. We were basically told, um, you just stay with the process and we'll see what happens at the end. And and when we ask what's the process, they just would just say, well, we'll see, we'll see. So there, it just wasn't handled well. And I, I say that and we're still, you know, we're still with our organization. And the reason is, I think they learned something. I, I hate to say that we were the guinea pigs, but um, and I wanted to leave like so many times. And Mark kept saying, God's not called us to leave. And somehow he's going to redeem this. Um, and I look back on it now, like several years later, and I'll say this, it has, it has given us tools to help other people that we would never have had before if we didn't, and an understanding that we would never ever have had before if we had not walked through it ourselves. So now we we advocate for trauma-informed care for missionaries, for church people in the church, for with I work with humanitarian organizations, NGOs, aid groups. I don't care who you are. I want you to know about trauma, and I want your care for your people to be trauma-informed, as well as like communities in the world. I want churches <laughs> all around the world to know about trauma so they can help people. A couple of hours after our interview, I got an email from Stacy, and I promised her that I would read it. It said this, Rob, I thought of something important that I want to say. I can't believe I forgot because it made all the difference. There was one couple who listened to our story and did not turn away from us. They just loved us. They stayed for the whole ugly journey, never criticized or judged us, sat with us in our hurt and anger and pain, cried with us. They stayed when no one else did. It made all the difference. I don't think we could have made it without them. Trauma, people can recover from trauma, but they need community to do it. And um, the church is the place. Diane Lamberg, Dr. Diane Lamberg says, trauma is the mission field, and it is. Um, so I would say churches get trained. The Trauma Healing Institute of the American Bible Society, they have an amazing program called Healing the Wounds of Trauma. And they, and I'm a facilitator for them, but we train people in communities all over the world, including the U.S. We train people in churches and communities about trauma. So people are wounded. I mean, they're, people are wounded with wounds that we can't see. They're invisible. But they're every bit as wounded as the person who lost a limb or was shot and it affects every part of us even our part even our faith part mark uh went through this therapy and you went through some as well and um yeah. your daughter too with her therapy mm -hmm. so where are you guys now hey we're a therapy family we we are believers in uh good therapy <laughs> mark and i are still our chaplains and um, I, I do a lot of crisis response like disaster response so I believe in therapy and I, I go to therapy. Mark actually um, he also started some medication which really helped him like all of it together was 
he, he kind of had a multifaceted approach to treatment and it it has made a world a world of difference for him and now the great thing is he's able to go back and talk to veterans he's talked to uh, first responders like all kinds of people who might otherwise not relate to somebody um, but he's able to relate to some of those folks that other people can't and when he says I went to therapy I'm a believer in it and I take I even take medication um, it helps kind of lift the stigma when you when you see some big guy like my husband you know who's not afraid to say yeah I've been broken trauma is healed in community um, and you can't have community if you don't find a way to share your story and be honest with each other and transparent about what hurts you. Um, you can't have community. Hmm. And so. Oh, that's that's profound. It really is. Um, it, community is just superficial until you until you yeah. reach that point that you can share on that level with people. Yeah. And it's hard. And I'll say this: like I I don't I'm very careful what I tell hurting people. I, I tell them to be share with safe people that it may be that you don't tell a lot of folks about your your story maybe you just are very choosy you know at first and but find that one safe person to start with and tell them somebody that can hold your story hmm. and tell them that's the first step to to healing i think the work you're doing is is so important and you guys are the kind of people who've who go down in the pit and go down in the trenches with people and you're doing work in Ukraine right now, but um, really wherever there's a need, you've been to so many different places in the world. So if people can people join your team financially, if they want to support the work you're doing, because I think it's amazing work that you're oh, doing. Thank you. Of course they can. <laughs> thank you for that plug. Rock. Of course they can, because we can't do it if people don't. And we really, really appreciate our partners. Um, at the website for this, the story that writes us.com. Um, I'm going to put in the show notes for this, I'll put a link. I would, I would be really happy if we came away from this and you got more financial support for what you're doing. Uh, the other thing that makes me really happy is that churches, uh, and individuals would just have a better understanding of, of trauma and how to respond to it as they see it in people. And I can't thank you enough and tell, tell Mark, thank you too. Um, and, uh, it just means so much to me that he was, he was willing to let you share some painful parts of of your story with uh, with this audience and th- like i said there's a risk in that so thank you for trusting yeah. this this group and um and yeah. tell him thank you so much you'll continue to be in my prayers and I, I love you guys and the ministry that you have so thank you for sharing your story thank you So I've got another episode coming out next week, but then after that, I'll be putting a pause on the weekly release schedule of the podcast. I'm going to be going on vacation, but oh, I've got some good interviews uh, coming up with some fascinating people I can't wait to introduce you to. So good stuff is coming, y'all. The Story That Writes Us is part of the Adult Discipleship Ministries at Custer Road United Methodist Church in Plano, Texas. Thank you for listening.